Good morning. If you missed the introduction of who I am, I'm Dan Hall, and uh, I work with an organization called Generous Church. I, I laughed with the first service. I'm one of those that comes in after the thing gets started, so we miss all the pertinent announcements, and so I'm the guy that... So if you were one of those that you're like me, you kind of show up after it gets started, uh, then I just want to reintroduce myself. I work with an organization called Generous Church. Um, our passion is to see what would happen if the church truly became generous. Now, let me just tell you what we're not. We're not a fundraising campaign. We're not trying to get money. We're not trying to get in your pocket. What we want to do is share with you the joy of living a generous life, of living uh, in, in such partnership with God's heart and God's purposes that it's just a natural outflow of who we are. I've had the privilege of getting to know several of your leaders, Tom and Dave and Matt and Ryan and some of the lay leaders over the last several months. And it's just been a privilege. Uh, I've been bragging on this church around the country. I travel quite a bit and just the, the joy I have of meeting people who are as authentic and passionate and sincere as who is here. So I just want to commend you for that. It's just a blessing to stand here and to stand in this pulpit, even though I can't see a thing. These lights are really bright. So uh, see, when you're as good looking as Tom, you can do that. You get up here with me, you start dimming it down. Or at least that's what he told me. I don't know. He, he said, Dan, you don't want to waste these good looks. I said, okay, Tom, I can see that. So I appreciate that. And uh, But you're going to have to put up with me today. So I want to just spend a little time, and then we're going to get into the text, and we'll be looking at Mark chapter 14 if you want to go ahead and turn there. I tend to preach out of the NIV, you know, the Necessary and Victory version. I know you all use the ESV, which is equally strong version. Um, but uh, go ahead and open your Bibles, and we'll be looking at that in just a minute. And I want to encourage you, I know some of us are used to seeing it on the overhead, but don't lose the discipline of opening your Bible. It really is helpful to do that. And we kind of do that to help spot us, but not to take away that, that discipline. We'll get to that in just a second. I want to take you back just a few years, 20 or 30, 40 years, and I want to talk to you about why is generosity such an important issue? Why would we talk about generosity when there's some of the other issues that we could talk about? We talk about holiness and morality and, and uh, hospitality and all kinds of things. Why generosity? Well, let's talk about it in a cultural context. Back in the 70s, two things happened, two transitions happened in our country that are very important for us to understand. One is that our country began a progressive transition from a production nation to a consumer nation. Up until about the 70s, our nation was known for our uh, product, what we created, what we built, what we developed and then sold around the world. In the 70s, kind of at the end of uh, uh, the heroes that came back from World War II and rebuilt our nation and that what was been called by Brokaw as the greatest generation, uh, those of us who came in the aftermath of that, the, I'm, I'm of that next generation, uh, our fathers and, and some, our grandfathers, built this, this uh, incredible context of prosperity for us by producing and building and creating. Creating. Uh, but, but in the 70s, we began to shift, and there was a change that occurred, and we began to become more consumer than productive. Okay, And so by the 80s and then the 90s and then the 2000s until today, our nation's economy is not being driven by what we produce, but rather what? by what we consume. So we have become what they now call a consumer nation. Our nation's economy is now measured not by how much steel or how much uh, product we create, but rather how much product we consume. 
Now that's a real psychological difference. You have to think about the difference in how people see the, uh, that things should, for instance, think about when in our second war, we went to Iraq. You remember what we were challenged to do? Don't let the enemy win, spend. You remember that? The first war ever in our history where we were told to spend more so that they'll know they can't take from us. Now, every other war, when we get into war, we were told, you know what? Pull back, ration, be careful. Let's, let's, let's be careful with what we have. We've had a whole psychological change where we need to consume more. Now, now what does that do to our value system? Now, think about this. I'm not mad about this. I'm just trying to point it out. I'm not rebuking anybody. I'm from that generation. I'm raising the next generation trying to deal with this. I just want us to understand the context. We went from finding our value in what we produced to finding our value in what we possess. Do you see the difference? At one time, our nation was known and we were known individually by what you did, what you produced, what you put your hands to and created. But over time, there's been this kind of uh, uh, ineffable shift to this. Now it's what we have. It's what we own. It's what we possess to the point to where now celebrity in and of itself is a value. It's not you're a celebrity because you did something. You're just a celebrity, and maybe you can do something with a celebrity. It's just to kind of create this reverse. And so you think about the psychology. I think about that with my own kids. My children have a totally different view of the world. They see the world differently than I saw it. I saw it differently than my parents saw it. My kids, how many of you are uh, 20 or younger? So let me see, see y'all. All right. Y'all have no idea what the world is like without a cell phone in the car. Or in your hand right now. I understand that. So we're, we're Facebooking even as we speak, right? You, I, I remember to me, freedom, freedom with the phone was when I, with my own money at 13 years old, saved up my allowance and cut yards to buy an extra long telephone cord that would reach all the way down the hall under my door so I could close my door and talk on the phone with some level of privacy. Because mom was always right there, right? And so, man, that was being free. And then we came up with the wireless phone. Wasn't that awesome? You couldn't get more than 10 feet from the base, but man, wasn't that awesome? There was no cord. Look at this. It's a wireless phone. Well, now we stay in touch everywhere. I went the first time I went to Africa, I was in touch. They have more cell phones in Africa than we do. They really do. You're out in the middle of the bush and some guy pulls out of his loincloth a cell phone. You're thinking, are you kidding me? It's just a different world that we live in. And the challenges present it. So here's my challenge. Because we're now in a culture where what we have and what we possess defines our value, guess what happens? We have to keep consuming more to have a sense of value. It's a very, it's a, again, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just trying to point it out so that we'll know what it is that we're dealing with. Second thing that I want you to notice that happened from the 70s up until today. Starting in the 70s, as a nation, we started saving less. Up until that point, most American households saved about 10% of what they made. Just They just did it off the top. Uh, they were, they gave more to their, to, to their churches and their charities and they saved more. So kind of the first 20% went aside to something else. They would give 10% away to, to charity or to churches and then they would save 10% and then they would live in the leftover. That became what they lived on. 
that began to sh- change and began to be 8% and then 6% and then 3% and then 1%. And in the late 90s, and I don't remember the exact date, but somewhere between 96 and 98, U.S. News and World Report said, we are now saving zero. No savings whatsoever. As an average, the household just quit saving. And so we started consuming every dollar that came in and there was no buffer. There was no, and so, well, then what happened? Then we got into the later eighties and the early two thousands and they began to show that we were now spending our equity. So not only were we not saving, but we were spending what we had saved in the form of housing equity and other events. And so a lot of the, the collapse that we've seen the last four or five years, we say, oh, it's the, it's the housing market, it's the Democrats, it's the Republicans, it's this president or that president. Folks, it's really much more complicated than that. There's no one silver bullet that's going to come in and solve it because what we have is huge cultural, psychological, emotional shifts in how we see value and how we see responsibility. Now, in that context, and think about that, we don't have any savings, and yet we find our value in what we consume. I was working with a church in Nevada in Las Vegas. We were working in one neighborhood, in one area of town, very not, not unlike uh, some places around Fort Lauderdale, where the average family, now th- these were wonderful, I mean, these were incredible homes. It was a very high-end area, but they were living, that, um, some of you economists will appreciate this, they were living on 137% of their income. Just like our government. But how do you live on 137% of your income? I mean, that's unsustainable. I'm, I'm uh, Newsflash, thus saith the Lord. I'm going to prophesy. <laughs> Thou shalt not sustain that. Right? I mean, that's just not bearable. So what does that all have to do with Generous Church? Well, one thing that we've learned at Generous Church is there's a lot of things that we should be working on. But one thing we have to be aware of is to know our culture, to know the seasons, and to know the times. And one of them is, is that we really believe that one of the big idols, one of the golden calves in the church today is the same golden calf that's in our nation. And that's that we're very materialistic. We find our value in what we have, how we dress, what we drive, where we live. And that has created chains on us that we don't see. They're invisible chains. They're, they're chains that hold us down. And because we're so used to it, as Tom says, I like the way he says, because it's the water we swim in, we're not aware that it's a problem. And so what I want to do is help us to get free from this because I struggle with it myself. I mean, I'm one of those guys that I'm a sucker. Uh, for the sale. If I go to buy a car, I'm going to go buy the strip down. You know, I'm going to be real disciplined when I walk in and be real in debt when I walk out. I mean, I, yeah, I'd love a f- seat heater. Oh, it's a sunroof. Really? Oh, a one sun, a, do, a double sunroof. Oh, it wipes your nose for you. Put that in there. And I'm, I can't buy a Dell computer. I go on a Dell computer. I get the advertisement for 479 for a computer. And by the time I add to it, it's $17,000. I, like, I thought it was 479. Well, it was, but by the time I put it in, so I live in that same value struggle myself of what we, what, what I have, what I enjoy, what I appreciate. So I'm not preaching at anyone. I'm inviting you on a journey with me to say, where does generosity play into this? And so here's our, here's our understanding. We have a wager at Generous Church. We have a wager. You heard about the fourth grade teacher that told all her kids that we're going to do a little exercise today. We want you to stand up, tell us what your father does, spell it for us, and then tell us what he would give us if he were here so that we kind of get a feel. It's going to be kind of a cross-educational process. So the first little girl raised her hand. Yes, Sally. She goes, well, my dad is a baker, B-A-K-E-R. And if he were here, he would give everyone a fresh baked cookie. Great. So you can sit down. 
Timmy raised his hand. Yes, Timmy. Well, my dad's a banker, B-A-N-K-E-R. And if he were here, he'd give everybody a fresh, shiny penny. That's great. That's great. Little Billy raised his hand. Yes, Billy. Said, my dad's an accountant, A-C-K-A-K. She said, hey, Timmy, just sit down. Think about that a minute. When you're ready to try it again, you can stand up. So Timmy sits down. Jerome raises his hand. Yes, Jerome. He said, my dad's a bookie, B-O-O-K-I-E. And if he were here, he'd give us 90 to 1 odds that Timmy ain't never going to spell accountant. (laughs) But we've got a wager at Generous Church. Here's our wager. Our wager is that generosity is a primary tool that God is using to do three things. It's to extend his kingdom in the earth. It's to free our hearts from the chain of materialism. And it's to attract a world that is drained by the emptiness of their materialism. That's our wager. Our wager is generosity is a primary tool. In fact, if we wanted to use 2 Corinthians 10, it's actually a weapon. The weapons of our warfare are mighty unto God to the pulling down of strongholds and casting down imaginations and every lofty thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It's a weapon that God can use to do three things. To extend His kingdom and break up the ground where it's fighting it. Number two, to deal with the greed in our own hearts and the materialism in our own hearts, but also to attract a world that is at their wit's end saying, this hasn't satisfied. This hasn't been enough. And so we want to talk about generosity this morning. And I just want to talk to you about two general things. I'm talking about the nature of generosity. We'll go through that fairly quick. And then we're talking about the impact of generosity. And I want to use the story in Mark 14 as the context for this, uh, these ideas that I want to present to you. Look at verse 3. And while he, being Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with him with an alabaster flax of ointment of pure nard. Now think about this a second. Who was this? Do you remember who this is? This story, by the way, is one of only two or three stories that's told in all four Gospels. Okay, it's a pretty significant story. Who was it that came and did this? Do you remember? Who? Uh, Mary, close, Mary. And she brings this flask of perfume, and here's what the Bible says about it. It says that it was very costly, and that she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, everybody say, to themselves. That's pretty good. They said to themselves, in other words, they thought it in their head, right? They said to themselves indignantly, have you ever been indignant in your head? You know the look, right? Miss Smith in third grade. So they thought to themselves indignantly. Look at what they said. Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Now, again, we know more about this story than what's right here. Who was the one that actually started this indignation? Who? Which one? No, actually Judas did. Now Simon was there, but yeah, Judas, Judas, one of the, one of the stories tells us that Judas said, okay, but then notice what happened. Judas spoke for several of them. He said what was in the minds of many in the room. Okay. Isn't that interesting? And so they got away with not getting criticized or getting named in the Bible, except God that still called them out. Have you ever done that? Have you ever heard somebody say something? You kind of agreed with them in your head, but you got out of the responsibility of actually having said it, but you agreed with it and wanted to see what happened. And so that's what's happening. Judas says, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't believe that you're just wasting that perfume like that. That could have been sold and taken care of the poor. Now, again, 
in another one of the stories, it tells us why did Judas do that? It's very interesting the way it says it. Not because he loved the poor, but why? Because he loved what? Money. And he was a keeper of the bag. One translation says he was keeper of the money bag. And so here was the guy who, who was trying to look spiritual. And I think this is important. And I don't want to camp here too long, but I just want to point this out of how many times we have to be honest with ourselves about what we're really thinking. Judas took the flack, but the fact is, is that a part of this, and we're going to see this in just a minute, is that we have to be honest with our own thoughts and our own indignation. All right, let's keep going. Uh, verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. I want you to remember this last verse, because we're going to come back to this in a minute. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, whatever she has done, will be told in her memory. And we'll come back to that last verse in a little bit. But I want to talk to you just a little bit about the nature of generosity. Three quick things I want to throw out to you. Number one, the nature of generosity is that it's a natural expression of worship. It's a natural expression of worship. Here she is. She said, listen, I, I love Jesus. He forgave me. I was a sinner. And here I, I want to pour this out to him. You see, see, real worship is not about just the songs we sing, which I love the songs that we sing, by the way. And I love, Ryan, are you in here? Ryan, did you slip out? He's back in the back office. They usually, I, I, my worship leader always comes in for the invitation with a little powdered sugar right there, right? So, so here, wipe that sugar off right there. All right. So, I mean, I love, I love our worship team. By the way, that pianist is a stud, isn't he? I say, he in there? He's playing two keyboards at the same time. Are you kidding me? Not that we need more of y'all's gifts up here on stage, but they're doubling even on the instruments up here. All right. So come help us out. But anyway, so I love the worship and, and I was raised, I was raised in the church. I was, I, my dad was a pastor. My father-in-law is a pastor. I got two brothers, two brother-in-laws. I mean, we're just kind of surrounded by, by the suckers. And so I, I mean, I understand. So I was raised in the church and, and, uh, and I love the new songs, but I like the old songs too. So I enjoyed that we were just, some of y'all don't even know that was a hymn that we sang at the end. Oh, that's a really cool new worship song. Yeah. Well, written about 1600, but anyway, yeah. It's a great song. Of course, you changed the beat on us a little bit, so I keep coming in wrong. I, kept, I was kept, I was, I'm glad I'm not, I'm not singing very loud. But I, I love this worship. But you know, worship isn't just about what we sing. Worship should flow out of a generous spirit because of God's generosity to us. How gracious God has been to us. I turn around and I worship back. Listen, generosity isn't about the songs we sing, but it's about the gratitude we express. It's centered in God. It's who He is. That's the reason it shouldn't matter what song we sing. It should matter who we're focusing on in our singing. And so generosity is a natural expression of worship. Number two about this is that it gives something of value. It gives something of value. Listen, we can't... Notice what she gave was very expensive. I don't know about you, but there's times that I feel like I'm generous when I'm really not. When I clean out my closet and give that to Goodwill, I feel really generous. But really, I just need closet space for more clothes. Right? I mean, if I'm really honest with myself, I'm not looking at this going, oh, I've got too much stuff and there's people who don't have anything. And I just, I really need to make room because I've just bought too much. I've consumed too much. And really, I don't wear those shirts anymore. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give them to the poor. 
and take a tax write-off in the process and make room in the closet to get it more closed. But you see what I'm saying? And there's a, there's a difference. And there's times that I even, we'll do it as a consignment. We'll go, because we really want the working poor to have the responsibility of buying their own clothes. So I'm trying to help them out. So I'll do it at the consignment shop. When really that's not charity. And it's okay to do this. Nothing wrong with that. We do that as well. But I have to be honest with myself about what's really at the core of this giving. And so here's what generosity does. It gives something of great value. She took this perfume and she poured it out. So what is it of great value that I can give to the Lord, to, to his purposes in the earth. Third thing that we see is that the focus is on Christ himself. Now, when Jesus said, the poor you'll always have among you, he wasn't rebuking them for caring about the poor. Good grief, not Jesus. I mean, Jesus was the one that wrote in Deuteronomy, don't forget the poor. The poor will always be with you. He was the one that actually introduced that as a reminder, you should always take care of them. And don't let your heart grow hard and not, remember every seventh year, all the debts had to be forgiven. And one of his things was, don't let your heart be hard to not give a loan in the sixth year because you know you'll have to forgive it the next year because you need to take care of them. He's the one that said that in Matthew 25, we'll be judged by whether we clothe the, the naked and we feed the hungry. And, and so God, he's not saying the poor don't matter. What he's saying is, is that the center of it is Christ. We're not looking for a bunch of spirit-filled Angelina Jolie's. We're not looking for, for you to, to try to match what the world is doing. We're saying we want it to flow out of a relationship with who Christ is. We had a family in our church, in the first church that I pastored, and they had a son who was a police officer, and he'd been at a, a practice shooting range, he and his partner, and they were coming back and had a car accident. He was severely injured, severe brain uh, injuries. They didn't even know if he was going to live. If he lived, was he going to be a vegetable? And it was a very touch-and-go time for several weeks. And so as soon as I got the news, I think I was actually in church or at church, and it was a Sunday afternoon, and so I rushed to the hospital and saw them and, and just made it a point to try to get there every day if I could. The hospital was a few miles, not very far, just a few miles away. And so I'd go up there, and it got to where after three or four days I would go see Charles and Faye, and Faye would meet me at the door, and she'd say, Pastor, I need you to come talk to somebody. Now here's a mother who's fighting for her son, clinging to life, doesn't know if he's going to live, if he's going to live, is he even going to be functional, and she got to care for him the rest of her life. But every time I would go to see her, you know what she'd be doing? She'd be introducing me to people in the, in the waiting room that needed ministry. She goes, I've been ministering to so-and-so, and, -so and you, I told them that you were going to come by today, and you'd come pray with them, and so come over here. And, and she goes, when you get through with them, we got somebody we need to go visit over here. And in between going in to see her son, she was out in the waiting room serving people. It was just her heart. That's generosity. Generosity is saying, you know, it's not about me. It's about what God's doing. What's his heart in the earth? What's he trying to accomplish? And so I was, I, I just know me. I don't think I would have been that involved in people's lives in the waiting room. I just, I'm, I'm selfish enough to go, who's going to care for me? But Faye taught me something through that about how we need to be aware of those that are around us. Now let me give you three things, three impacts as we look at this, this verse together. I want to give you three impacts to generosity that I think are important for, for us to get. And I just want to three, tell you three stories. The first thing, when we truly get into generosity, when generosity really defines us, and I, we had such a good time yesterday in our generosity encounter. I think we're planning on doing another one, aren't we? Uh, uh, in April, and we hope that you can come to that. Uh, my, my watch fell down behind my Bible, so I guess that means I can go as long as I want. I think that was the Lord speaking to me, saying, you know what, don't worry about it. Just shove it under the Bible and go. No. <laughs> we will definitely be out before 1.30 because I have a plane to catch, so don't worry. <laughs> Three things that I want you to see uh, about the impact of generosity. The first thing that I want you to see 
is that Jesus says it offers an eternal reward. He says what she did, and I love this, what it says, I don't think she woke up that morning and said, I need to prepare his body for burial. Now he said, when she did this, she was preparing my body for burial. But I don't think it's what she, I don't think she was thinking that way. I think she was just thinking about generosity. She just wanted to, she loved Jesus. And she wanted to pour this out. She wanted to say, and she knew something was coming down the pike. She knew it had been an intense week. I mean, this is the last week of Jesus' life. And so she wants to go serve him. And she, she pours this out and she anoints him. And Jesus says, she did that to anoint for my burial. I don't think she had a clue that's what she was doing. But let me tell you something about generosity. When we really live generous lives, we get in on what God's doing even when we don't know it. Now, I love this. And he gives her credit for it. She didn't know she had gotten in on God's purposes and she still got credit for it. That's a pretty gracious God. Because I, I do stuff in ignorance all the time. It's a standard life that I live. I'm, I don't usually know what I'm doing. Here's what I've learned. If I will just follow what's in his heart, it lands me right where I need to be. And so I want you to see that there's an eternal reward with this. I, my wife and I, when we were my privilege to have my wife here, we're about to celebrate our 25th anniversary. We have six kids, two grandkids. Our oldest is, yeah, yeah. And uh, we, do, we do actually have investments in Prozac, and so we are all doing well. So my oldest is 23. My two oldest daughters are married. And uh, all the way down to my youngest daughter is 12. I have four, uh, five girls and a son. And uh, my son and I just look at each other and leave often. Just as, I, I, we don't, I, I, I don't know. Let's just go. And I mean, it's just, it's just really a dynamic. My daughter, when they turn 12, they can start wearing makeup. We don't let them start wearing makeup till 12. And she just turned 12 about 10 days ago, so she's still figuring it out. You know what I mean? And so it's, it's a shock. And uh, I was sitting there working on my computer last week, and she came around. It's the first time I had seen her when she had done it by herself. And I, I physically bolted. I, I, I went, oh, oh hey. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Honey. <laughs> and so I told my wife, I said, man, I just had to sit on myself, not to say anything. Said, oh, baby, that's great. Cause I mean, it was intense. And, uh, and, it, and then it happened again the other morning. I'm in there fixing coffee. You know, I've gone to work. I get up early. I go work out and I'd gotten in. It was about six o'clock in the morning. She was just getting up. I was fixing some coffee, better go work in my office. And I'm, I'm pouring my coffee and I turn around. She walks around the corner and I, I said, you've got to stop doing that. Just quit. Just warn me before you come around the corner. So we're raising these kids, loving these kids. And, but when they were younger, when we were first pastoring, I've pastored three churches and then, and two interims. And so our first church was a church plant and we were pretty, we didn't have a lot of money. Our first year we were making 14,000. The second year they raised us 17,000. They got us all the way up to 20,000. I mean, we were raking it in at one point. We've always had a commitment to be big givers. And so we've kind of had a standard of 10% to the church, 10% to benevolence and 10% to mission. So even when we qualified for WIC, we were still giving, we, we, our passion was that we wanted to be givers and we wanted our lives marked by generosity. And so we've had some, some really uh, uh, fun encounters in this process, but we were off in Kansas City, and our second daughter had just been born, our 21-year-old had just been born, and we'd gone to Kansas City for a worship conference, and the wall had just come down, the Soviet wall had just come down. And th there, this conference was about world missions, and, and there was a guy up there saying, man, we need to, we, we've get, we need to get money for, for uh, Russian Bibles. We need to get in there. The wall's down. Seven years of communism. We can get in. This is the church's hour. This is our time. And I mean, I'm just up on my feet. Yeah, yeah, we need to, we need to give. Now, we were at a time in our lives where we were, it was thin. 
uh, when, and some of y'all will know this and maybe remember this, maybe this is where you are now, but, but when I would write my bills, I would write them all, but then I would put the, the date that it was due in the bottom corner of the envelope and I would mail it at the last minute. Does anybody know that kind of lifestyle? And, and I mean, it was just the way we lived. I mean, and so three days before it was due, I would put it in. I was just hoping that we could keep the money, you know, slinky, you know, the money coming in, going out, coming in, just trying to stay ahead of everything. So we were, that was just the way we lived. And that, we didn't think anything about it. I, I mean, we, we would get excited when we found money in the sofa. You know, that was the, that world. 10 more cents and those new tush brushes are all ours. I mean, we were really excited. And so we were off at this conference. We're sitting up there. And that was one of those things where I had a stack of bills sitting on my desk. They were dated. And this guy's up there saying, man, we can go into Russia. We can go, let's go for this. And I'm, I turned to my wife. I said, honey, I, let's do something. She said, hey, I'm in. If, of course, she's bouncing a baby. I'm in. And I said, I, well, I want She goes, how much do you want to do? I said, I'd like to empty our bank account. Now, I don't recommend this to you, but we have a faith level for this. But I'm saying it, this is, I mean, this is just our passion. And she goes, well, she goes, it makes me nervous. But if that's what you feel like you want to do, let's do it. So I did. I wrote now, understand, I've already written checks on that money. Now I've not sent them, so I've not broken any laws, but I have written them and I'm thinking, now how's God going to provide for this? And so I, I wrote our checkbook down to $1. And man, we were up in the top of the thing. 10,000 people were in this thing. We walked down there, worship. It was going crazy. We got down to the front and there were tables up there. There were Rolex watches. There were rolls of $100 bills. There were diamond rings. I mean, it was just piled up there. It turned out to be $1.3 million that they raised. So we're walking down. And we get up to the table with my little measly check, my little widow's mite. wasn't much. I mean, I don't know how much it was going to do. And I started to give it and she leaned over and she goes, I think they have enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he still want to, she goes, yeah, I want to give it. So we gave our little widow's mite on that table. Now, let me tell you something. I don't remember what happened. Somebody said, oh, did God come back and give you a yacht? You know, did God give you a new house? Did Ed McMahon show up at your house? Y'all don't even know who Ed McMahon is, do you? So Publishers Clearing House, that's just talking about a a change of... uh, So I, I don't know what happened. Here's what I know. 20 years later, I've not gone hungry. My bills have been paid. I've never been evicted. I don't know that I can tell you we gave this money and then all of a sudden this other money came in. What I know is that God's always been faithful to meet every need. Here's what I also can tell you is that we gave to buy Russian Bibles so that the gospel would go into Russia. And let me tell you something. No one can ever take that away from us. We will always have that on our account. We will always, money that we didn't think we could give is now an eternal investment that no one says she will be remembered by this. Folks, let me tell you something. When you're living a generous life, you get to give something that no one can take away from you. Let me tell you a second thing that we see here is that it confronts our hearts. Generosity confronts our hearts. Notice what they, they said. Why are you giving this? Why? Are, and, and the whole text, they're being confronted. They're scolding her while she's loving Jesus. And sometimes we can hide behind our religious jargon to get away from the things of God. But the fact is, we need to be honest with ourselves. You heard about the state trooper that pulled the, the Texan over in Texas who was pulling a, a trailer of horses. And he pulls up and he's writing the guy a ticket and these flies are flying around the state trooper's head and he keeps trying to bat them away and push them away. And, and he and finally in the middle of writing the ticket, he goes, man, these flies are bad. I hadn't seen these this bad. And the driver of the truck, the old Texas farmer said, oh yeah, those are circle flies. The state trooper said, circle flies? What are circle flies? 
He goes, oh, circle flies are flies that fly circles around horses' rears. <laughs> State trooper says, hey, you calling me a horse's rear? The old farmer goes, oh, no, sir. I would never do that. But there's no fooling them flies. All right. <laughs> That's the way we have to be with our hearts and generosity. Listen, we can try to convince ourselves, but there's no fooling truth. There's no fooling the Lord, right? And so it confronts our hearts. I, one of the things that our family loves to do at Christmas is we like to, you know, angel tree and we adopt other families to buy Christmas for. And we have several boundaries that we do. And one is, is that we want whatever we spend on our family, we're going to spend on the family that we're buying for. Okay. And so if we, you know, whatever, and with six kids and a couple of grandkids, that can be a lot of money, but it becomes a part of our commitment that we're going to love others as we love ourselves, that we're going to make sure that we're, we're giving out in the same way that we're consuming. It's just one of the boundaries that we've put on. And so we, we enjoy doing that. And I love it that when my kids love that, they love to go shopping. They love to take the gifts out there. Well, last year we were helping do that. And this year we adopted two families, but last year we adopted three families and we couldn't do all three of them because we were, and we made that same commitment. We've got some help with a couple of those families, but one of the families we were kind Kind of helping trying to get our church to get more involved in that. There were two couples adopted a family and they were going to go in together to buy this family gifts. So he called up there and, and the lady telling the story later. So we called up there and the woman that we talked to that we're going to buy a Christmas gifts for her kids. They weren't, she was just almost indifferent, almost like, yeah, well, whatever you can come on. So when can, you know, we just want to buy these gifts. Well, here's what we need. Here's what the kids need. And she said it was really kind of uncomfortable because she wasn't very gracious. She said, well, we didn't think much about it. So we went and bought all the gifts and the two couples together did all this, bought all the gifts, wrapped them all, put them in their car. She called them and said, listen, we got these gifts ready. When would be a good time for us to bring them? And she said, well, about the only time that would be good for me would be Thursday at 3.30. Okay, well, we're going to bring your Christmas gift to your kids, but we, you know, the only time convenient for you is 3.30. So they were a little irritated by that, but they drove those gifts out there. They got to the house, knocked on the door. The woman opened the door. And uh, she said, hey, we came to bring you gifts. She goes, okay, good. Uh, just put them over there. She goes, what do you want us to put them under the tree? No, 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 just dump them there. I'll take care of them later. Th thank you. And so she said, man, she was all, it was so uncomfortably indifferent. She goes, I was getting mad. And so they, they, they get ready to leave and they turn around and the woman said, thanks, and closed the door with them standing on the front porch. Well, these two couples would, did what any godly couple would do. They went to lunch and complained about the whole thing. <laughs> Oh, I can't believe they treated us like that. Can you believe they acted like that? Can you believe they... And they were going on and on at this restaurant about ingratitude and the entitlement mentality in our country and blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, the, the lady who was telling the story, she said, she just began to cry. Well, that freaked out the men. You know, they're like, oh, no, no, don't cry. She goes, no, no, no. She goes, I'm not crying because of the way she treated us. She goes, sitting here, the Holy Spirit just convicted me that that's exactly how I treat Him. That He came in Christ, gave Himself for me, brought all these gifts for me, and my whole attitude is, well, let me tell you what's convenient for me. Stick them over there. I'll deal with them when I'm ready. And she said, I'm realizing I just saw myself. Well, they repented together around lunch and they decided to go back and minister to this lady. They were going to pray for us. They show up, they knock on her door, she opens the door. She's as stunned that they're there as they are. And they began to say, you know what, when we came the first time, we kind of threw gifts at you. What we'd like to know, is there anything else we can do for you? Any way we could pray for you? Because they felt like, man, we've got to be God to her. 
We need to express God to her. He said, as soon as they said that, she began to weep. She said, you know, I've been doing this for several years. She goes, it's embarrassing to put my name on that list. I can't afford Christmas for my kids. She goes, but what I know is that the, most of the time when people bring it, they're not really, they don't care about me. They, they want to kind of satisfy their need to do something. And she goes, it just gets embarrassing. She goes, I've never had someone just stop and say, what can we do for you? How can we pray for you? They began to minister to her, began to take her to church, take her family to church. I don't know the end of that story. Uh, last I heard, they were involved in the church. But what struck me was, you know, oftentimes we do things that we think are generous when really they're self-serving. We want to be thanked for them. We want to be valued for them. We want to be, but you know, if we do it like God did it with no expectation except I'm going to love you, it can really confront your heart. And that's what happened here with this story. Third thing that we see happens is that it touches a lost world. True generosity touches a lost world. Notice what he said. He said, listen, everywhere this gospel goes, it's going to be credited to her. This gospel is going to go out. I want you to know generosity touches the world. When we are generous, when we are saying, God, how can you use us? A lost world sits up and takes note. When we were expecting our third child, uh, who's now 19, uh, my wife was going to an aerobics class, and we had two cars. We had a, a Nissan Sentra that was held together by Jesus stickers, and we had a 73 Buick Century. Land yachts, what we called it. It was just slightly smaller than this room. It was huge. You remember those big bench seats and the front seat? And we get four people in the front, four people in the back, you know, all illegal. Three in the rear view mirror, you know, because I mean, in the back window. And, uh, and so we had these two cars. Well, we were about to have our third kid and that Nissan wasn't going to hold all three of us. So we needed that Sentry. We needed that uh, big Buick. Well, she had gone to this aerobics class and, 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 uh, it was at a church. And uh, this, it wasn't a very expensive car. The radio actually cost more than the car, seriously. And I put this radio in because if I'm going to have a bad car, I'm going to have a good radio, right? Because you still, I mean, you can still enjoy the music. So she drives up one day and a janitor sees her in this old car, this old Buick Century. And he says, hey, is that car for sale? She goes, I don't think so. Well, he was kind of kept bu- bugging her. Man, was, are you sure you don't want to sell it? So finally she said, well, I'll have to ask my husband. So she asked me, she said, hey, uh, is that car for sale? I said, well, yeah, everything's for sale. Absolutely. What does he want for it? She said, well, use he said to name a price. Well I, well, I gave a big number out there. I mean, worth more than, than it was really worth, but Hey, I wasn't trying to cheat him. I just said, Hey, if you've got, if you want to pay that for this car, this is what I'll do for it. He agreed to it. I'm thinking God's paying us back for the Russian Bibles. This is fantastic. <laughs> God, we're going to sell this piece of junk and we're going to get this money and this is how God's providing for us and then we're going to go buy a minivan that actually has a latch on it. You know, we everything we did was with screwdrivers and bail wire. And so we're going to actually open, we can lock it, put the kids... I was dreaming how God was going to provide for this sale. So the day came for me to go do the paperwork with him and I was having my quiet time. I was reading my Bible and praying and all of a sudden I heard this in my heart. Give Jimmy the car. Well, you know what you do next, right? Get behind me, Satan. You know the enemy, (laughs) the devil, is trying to steal your prosperity, trying to steal the blessing. And so, man, I put my foot down, stood my ground. No, this is the Lord's blessing. Well, you know the story. And I knew. It didn't take long before I knew that was the Lord. And I was kind of mad at it at first. And maybe some of y'all know this. Kind of, oh, man, God, really? 
And then I started thinking about it. And then, you know, you just have enough history with God going, wait a minute, God, if this is what you want to do, then there's something cool in this. And it was, after a few minutes, my heart started changing. And then I started getting excited about it. Oh, this is so cool. I don't know what God's going to do with this, but I was so excited to give him the car. I couldn't wait to get there. I drove there, pulled in, parked the car, went into the lobby. He was walking across the lobby. He goes, hey, Mr. Dan. I said, hey, Jimmy, come here. We need to talk. We kind of panicked, like, what's wrong? I said, no, come in here. We just need to sit down and talk. And so he's like, is something wrong? I said, no, no, I just need to talk to you a minute. So we have two fold-out chairs and put them down, one in front of me and one right here. And I said, Jimmy, I need to tell you something. He said, man, are are, are you calling it off? I mean, are you still going to give me? I said, no, no. I said, I'm not going to sell you the car. I said, Jimmy, I need to tell you something. This morning, in my prayer time, God said, give Jimmy the car. And I said, that's what I want to do. He got so quiet. Just got still. His face kind of glassed over. His eyes start sweating. So I start trying to minister. Oh, you know, Jim, that's great. I just know God wants to bless you. And this goes on for a couple of minutes where he just starts crying. Tears just coming down his face. And I'm just thinking, oh, this is so cool. Because that's, you know, when they're crying, it's when you got them, right? That's when you know you heard God. So I'm thinking, ah, this is awesome. You know, God's really moving. And then he said, I said, you know what? This is great. And I'm just really happy for you. And he goes, Dan, Mr. Dan, what is it you said? I said, well, I'm glad God's blessing. He goes, no, 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 before that. I was trying to think of what he was talking about. Finally, went all the back. I said, oh, you mean what, what God said? He said, yeah, what did you say? And I said, well, God, God told me to give Jimmy that car. And he looked at me, tears just coming down his face. He leaned toward me and he said, God knows my name. See, he wasn't crying because he got a car. He was crying because the God of the universe, the God that sees tomorrow better than we see yesterday, the God that according to Isaiah 40 sees the earth as a drop in the bucket, as a speck of dust and meaningless and less than nothing, that that God knows his name. Folks, generosity attracts a lost world. Not because of the things that we have, but because that generosity opens their hearts to a gospel that they've been closed to. And so our challenge to you is how can you be a part of what God is doing? How can you say, how can we as a church say, God, I want to open everything that I have, my time, my money, my influence, my relationships. I want to become generous. It's not about what I can get and possess, but it's about what I can invest and be a part of what God's doing in the earth. That's our prayer for you. That's our prayer for the church in America, that we would become passionately generous.